Welcome to the new Fixing Healthcare podcast series, Diving Deep. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur, also the host of the Popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and a, the author of the best-selling book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits from his books go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want further information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can go to his website at robertperlmd.com. On this episode of Diving Deep, I plan to ask him about the complex intersection of the world inside and outside of medicine. I'd like to understand more about physician burnout and whether COVID will ever end. Robbie, I know that you follow the annual Medscape surveys on physician burnout and gain important insights into the practice of medicine based on the data. What does this year's poll teach us? I appreciate your asking, Jeremy, because the past year hasn't been kind to physicians. The 2022 Medscape poll on physician burnout confirms what has been painfully obvious to doctors on the front lines of COVID-19. Their burnout is intensifying. Medscape describes burnout as, quote, long-term unresolvable job-related stress that leads to exhaustion, cynicisms, and feelings of detachment. We know that burnout results in reduced fulfillment, greater dissatisfaction, and negative consequences for both doctors and patients. As most of us would have predicted, the survey of 13,000 physicians found that the nation's most burned out doctors last year were those in emergency medicine, 60% of them, and critical care, 56% of them. Remember, these are the physicians who've been fighting a continuous and often losing battle against the coronavirus. You know, Jeremy, I can remember well the distress that I heard in the voice of a colleague who had lost four patients from COVID on the same day. And the pain a resident described as she began a month-long rotation in the ICU with eight patients and ended four weeks later having watched all of them die. But some of the results from the Medscape burnout survey, they were surprising, at least at first glance. Let me give you an example. The third most burned out set of physicians over the past year were doctors who practice obstetrics and gynecology at 53%. And not far behind them were pediatricians at 49%. Surprisingly, the burnout rates over the past two years most rose most rapidly for OBGYN and pediatrics, and that's compared to nearly all of the other 27 specialties surveyed. Compared to 2020, the Medscape poll found that the burnout rate for pediatric physicians was up 8%, and for OBGYNs, 13% since the start of the pandemic. And that is massive, given the large number of doctors included in the surveys. Robbie, we talked about burnout on fixing healthcare many times. Uh, Do traditional reasons doctors give explain the variation between these specialties and uh, the others Medscape polled? Jeremy, the, the short answer is no. 
The most common reason doctors give for burnout is the bureaucratic tasks they're forced to complete. These include obtaining prior authorizations for tests and procedures that the doctor knows is indicated and completing billing and claims forms for the care the physicians provide. And if anything, these requirements probably have diminished slightly over the past two years in response to the pandemic. As tragic as COVID-19 has been, and that includes the 1 million deaths our nation has experienced, COVID doesn't explain why either obstetrics and gynecology or pediatrics would have seen soaring burnout rates compared to other specialties. I mean, after all, OBGYN and pediatricians, unlike their colleagues in the ER and critical care units, these doctors have minimal responsibility for managing patients with COVID. And they haven't had to watch large numbers of COVID patients die every day, wave after wave. So the impact of patient care demands and the bureaucratic tax don't explain the rapid rise in burnout for these two specialties. Uh, what does? Part of the answer lies in what distinguishes these two specialties from nearly all others. According to recent estimates, 85% of all OBGYN physicians and 73% of pediatricians are women. These are the highest percentages of female physicians among all specialties. And we know that the pandemic has disproportionately impacted women's lives compared to those of men, particularly in the home. In the past, the overwhelming majority of medical students were men, and many, if not most, had wives who cared for the family needs on a full-time basis. That's very different today. Now the majority of medical students are women, with a large proportion of female physicians being in their 30s and 40s, the time when people have children and raise them. And over the past two years, the combination of school closures and added tasks in the home have led women to spend eight to 10 more hours a week on these family-focused tasks than their male partners and spouses. This is the equivalent of a full day's worth of work that has simply been added on over the past two years. What's been the burnout rates of men versus women in the past? Jeremy, medicine has seen progress toward gender equality in recent decades, but the fact remains we're far from the destination. Even before the pandemic, women physicians consistently reported higher burnout rates than male doctors. A lack of due recognition at work and fairness in how they are treated, no doubt, contributed to the higher rate of burnout among women physicians compared to men. A 25% pay gap still stands between men and women in medicine. In academic periodicals, women are published far less often than men, and they account for only one in five editor-in-chief positions at top-ranked medical journals. In fact, women are unrepresented in nearly all healthcare leadership positions, making up only 18% of hospital CEOs and 16% of deans and department chairs. Among physician mothers, nearly one in three have experienced discrimination because of pregnancy or breastfeeding. And sexual harassment 
has been disproportionately reported by women beginning in medical school. And this is according to a recent survey in the New England Journal of Medicine. In my book on caring how the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients, I have an entire chapter on these issues and the unacceptable practices that exist in medicine. But there's no evidence that these longstanding gender inequities at work or really anything inside medicine has become that much worse over the past two years for women as opposed to men than in the past. As such as problematic as these problems are, they all fail to explain the recent increases in burnout among women-led specialties with a current 15% gap in burnout rates between sexes with 56% of women physicians reporting being burned out versus 41% of men. As such, the clearest explanation for the recent surge among OBGYNs and pediatricians is specific to events happening outside the medical profession. And that points directly to gender inequality within relationships as contributing strongly. Robbie, does this mean that not all burnout comes from what happens inside the medical profession itself? Jeremy, yes. Based on the MedSkip data, that would be a clear takeaway and the most logical conclusion from the recent poll. This otherwise inexplicable surge in burnout for women demonstrates what I think of as a two-way flow between work and home between medicine and society overall. Without question, the systemic contributions to COVID, including the bureaucratic tasks that we discussed earlier, these, along with expectations to see more patients per day than a doctor can comfortably handle, and the clunky computers that literally come between the doctor and the patient, these are all problems that need to be addressed. Moreover, the moral injury physicians feel when they can't deliver the best medical care definitely adds to the pain. As described in Uncaring, the culture of medicine is equally problematic. It establishes hierarchies of esteem and respect that discriminate against women based on the specialties they tend to choose. But this new survey adds an additional layer. It shows that the gender inequality women face in their personal and home lives inhibits their professional success and reduces their career satisfaction. Now, it's not that people didn't know that gender inequality existed, even in households where both people are physicians. It's just that the magnitude of the impact on burnout had never been called out or even mentioned in the annual Medscape surveys. And now with the data in front of us, I believe it can't continue to be ignored. What's clear from the data and the comments that accompany the survey is that during the pandemic, women have been forced to work more additional hours than men in all phases of their life. It's what sociologists and psychologists label as, in quotes, the third shift means that women work one shift at home, then another on the job, and finally a third shift, one which includes taking on even more, even extra responsibilities at home and with their children. 
the pandemic added far more third shift duties on average for women than for men. When schools closed, women most often were the ones to supervise their kids' remote learning and pay attention to the emotional needs of the entire household. Lorena Yi, a senior partner McKenzie, described this third shift vividly in an article for Fast Company. She labeled it as unpaid, underestimated, unglamorous, and essential. After two years of it, for women in medicine, this triple shift is causing heightened levels of frustration, fatigue, and unfulfillment, both in their personal lives and at work. How do doctors view the relationship between burnout and personal problems in their lives? Jeremy, doctors are acutely aware of the impact professional burnout has on their lives outside of work. In the Medscape poll, more than two-thirds of physicians say it is having a negative effect on their personal relationships. Those who are burned out at work report getting angry at home, having less interest in romance, and feeling guilty when the stress gets in the way of spending time with their kids. All major problems with long-term consequences. But as doctors, we're told to shut the door on the problems in the rest of our lives once we unlock our offices or walk into the hospitals. We're taught that our focus needs to be on patience. We use denial and repression as tools to block out these stressors. But like all defense mechanisms, they leak. And during the pandemic, the magnitude of the spillover from gender inequality at home to burnout at work grew. Robbie, what do you think the solution is? I wish there were an easy solution or even one that could address all of the factors, but there's not. If I had to offer a first set of thoughts, it would be that our nation focus on two prongs simultaneously. The first prong would be the systemic problems. Doctors want the world to notice the pain they experience and to do something about it. Although I too would like that to happen, I don't see it occurring until physicians find a way to both improve the medical care they provide and to make it more affordable for patients. And that will require huge systemic changes to how medical care is provided by doctors, reimbursed, technologically enabled and led. Expecting physicians to lead the, this process of change, that may be unfair given how hard doctors currently work, the decades or more they must train and the huge debt they often incur. But until healthcare is made more affordable and easier to access, people will focus more on their own difficulties rather than those of the people who provide the medical care. That's just human nature. In addition, part of this first prong will be reducing the bureaucratic tasks that have been piled on doctors and for the governmental agencies that have the power to force electronic healthcare record companies to open their application programming interfaces to third parties so that apps can be built to make the computer more clinician friendly rather than billing focused. What's the second prong? Jeremy, the second prong is to recognize the impact that forces outside of medicine exert on burnout and to begin to address those at a personal 
at societal level. It's not reasonable to expect insurers to compensate for problems outside their control. Building sufficient dollars into how much doctors are paid so as to allow them to have and raise children, I think that's vital for the long-term health of our nation. As part of that commitment, there needs to be funding for pregnancy, pregnancy leave, postpartum delivery, and early childhood bonding. We shouldn't think of any of this as extra, but simply the equivalent of paying doctors at levels that will allow them to take the time that's required for their families in the same way that they're given time in order to rejuvenate from the difficulties and the work in the office so as to be able to provide better medical care in the future. But expecting insurers to compensate for gender inequity at home, the inequality in time of men and women, I think that's probably a different issue. Resolving that inequity, that should be addressed within the confines of a couple's relationship. There are various permutations and combinations for how a couple might choose to divide the various tasks. For some couples working hard to pay for help is their preference. Others decide to share the responsibilities equally. A third group may elect to have one partner carry almost all the load. But when society imposes an asymmetrical solution based solely on gender, then the resolution needs to be in the home, not at the insurer level. I'm sure some listeners will disagree with this view, but tasks that can be done equally well by men and women, such as helping kids with schoolwork and taking them to after-school activities, those tasks would seem most appropriately split equally, rather than based on whether an individual is born with two X chromosomes or an X and a Y. We need to acknowledge that's impossible for anyone to work eight to 12 extra hours each week at home on top of a busy work schedule without feeling exhausted, cynical, and having the sensation of detachment, the classic findings in burnout. Burnout at work negatively impacts people's personal lives, but inequity and inequality in people's personal lives similarly drives up burnout at work. As hard as it will be to overcome these societal problems, they will need resolution if we hope to improve the satisfaction and fulfillment of doctors. Based on the data, gender inequality at home strongly contributes to burnout at the workplace, and it needs to be recognized, acknowledged, and addressed. Let's shift to what's happening with COVID. Many listeners have written to our show, uh, Coronavirus the Truth, wanting to know when will life return to 100% normal. This is our chance to dive into greater detail. We're now into what I think of as the third phase of the pandemic. And the minimal and maximal risk people are willing to take has varied based on whether it was year one, two, or three of COVID. I think of the minimal and maximal danger people find acceptable as risk boundaries. You know, you can visualize a long horizontal line with numbers going from zero to 100, left to right. These numbers represent degrees of perceived risk. Zero would be no risk, and 100 would be overwhelming, unmanageable danger. Now imagine two adjustable vertical lines that demarcate a particular segment of that line, 
like pegs on a game board. The vertical line to the right, that's the maximum risk a person is willing to take. Anything more than that is simply unacceptable. And the vertical line to the left, that marks the point where the threat is perceived to be low enough that the individual believes that no restrictions are necessary. These are your risk boundaries for any situation, be it driving on the freeway or navigating a pandemic. In the car, each of us has a speed above which we wouldn't go. We see it as being too dangerous, but there's also speed which we see as the slowest we'll drive, even if the posted highway maximum were to drop below it. These are our own personal risk boundaries. And unless traffic impedes our progress, we'll stay somewhere in between them. In general, people will accept safety measures that fall between these two lines. However, when officials place restrictions outside these bounds, people question the adequacy of the protection provided at the high end, and they resist following the recommendations at the low end. Applying this model to COVID, it's clear that our nation's risk boundaries have shifted dramatically over the past three years, and that currently public health guidance now exists outside the lines for a growing number of Americans. In 2020, Americans were terrified. People were dying from mysterious illness for which there was no cure or treatment. There was almost nothing people wouldn't do to keep themselves and their families safe. Most Americans perceive risk as intense, and they were happy to comply with even the most rigid health restrictions. By 2021, public sentiment had shifted, and people's risk boundaries had moved. Vaccines were available. People felt that the overall risk of dying was relatively low. Americans began to go to movies and restaurants. They started hugging family members and hanging out with friends. At the same time, believing that herd immunity was right around the corner, most people were willing to continue to observe, at least for the intervening months, precautions that they otherwise wouldn't for their entire life. But they saw the pandemic as ending just around the corner. In 2022, people's risk boundaries have moved much further to the left towards the zero line. The highly transmissible Omicron variant, which arrived last fall, was responsible for the change in perception. Americans recognize that contrary to prior promises and predictions, herd immunity was never going to come. Omicron could break through immunity, and a third of the country seemed unwilling to become vaccinated no matter the danger or the warning. Vaccinated individuals accepted they were likely to become infected through what's called breakthrough infections, but they assumed that the illness wouldn't be very severe. They questioned why, if COVID will be with us forever, should we continue masking and avoiding large groups? The idea of social distancing for the rest of their lives, that simply wasn't acceptable. It was outside the risk boundaries. Many people saw Omicron as being most similar to the flu. And if they didn't wear masks or social distance during the flu season, why would they do so now and for the rest of their lives? So Robbie, where does this leave our nation? Jeremy, I don't know if you ever watched the TV show Survivor. For listeners who haven't, at the end of each episode, after a series of physical challenges and strategic alliance arrangements, the contestants get together to vote someone off the island. Once the votes are tallied, the host tells the evicted cast member, the tribe has spoken. 
The host then snuffs out the loser's torch and sends the person packing. That famous TV catchphrase now applies to public perception of COVID-19. Americans have declared an unofficial end to the pandemic. Most people are no longer willing to mask up, keep their kids out of school, or avoid spending time with family and friends. The tribe has spoken, and what they're saying is at odds with what the White House and Centers for the Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, are recommending. As such, policy experts find themselves in a difficult situation. At least publicly, they don't believe the pandemic will be over soon, but based on people's behavior, Americans believe it already is. Why do you say that? Jeremy, let me answer your question with a story. The evening of April 18th, I took a flight from Toronto to Newark. Shortly before takeoff, cheers spread through the cabin and passengers began removing their masks. With a wide grin, the man across the aisle turned his iPhone to me and they've just announced that he said, masks are no longer required for travel. As you remember, earlier that night, a federal judge in Florida issued a court order striking down the CDC's mask mandate at public transit hubs. Within an hour of the ruling, the four largest airlines suspended mask requirements for domestic flights. And yet as Americans cheered the ruling and ripped off their masks, health and safety regulators continue to urge caution. Surveys show that 70% of people agree with the statement, it's time to accept that COVID is here to stay and we just need to get on with our lives. My eyes tell me that's already happened. On the last couple of flights that I've taken, fewer than 10% of travelers were masked. At a breakfast event I spoke at last week, maybe a handful of the hundreds of people in attendance were wearing a mask or trying to keep six feet from each other. And yet the CDC still recommends everyone aged two and older, including passengers and workers, properly wear a well-fitting mask or a respirator over the nose and mouth in indoor areas. And that includes on planes and in airports. Meanwhile, White House medical advisor, Dr. Fauci told reporters, by no means is it over, we're still experiencing a global pandemic. And Biden's COVID-19 response coordinator, Dr. Ja, cautioned in a CNN op-ed, hundreds of Americans are still dying from COVID each day. So Robbie, are elected officials and regulatory officials wrong then? Uh, no. It's just that people's views are based as much on their risk boundaries as scientific fact. This is not misinformation. It's just personal sense of how much risk they're willing to take. Public health agencies and many of the experts look at the data. It shows that COVID cases are rising across the U.S. and that unvaccinated people are continuing to die. In light of these trends, they provide guidelines about what is the safest way to respond. Technically, they're correct. But now that American sentiment has shifted, providing that rigid guidance proves ineffective. Not that it's wrong, it's just that it doesn't work. Giving people's views of the risks seems foolish. Believing that sharply worded cautions and scientific based scare tactics will have a meaningful impact on their behaviors, to me, feels naive. Again, not wrong, just ineffective. 
And as such, the recommendations, although textbook accurate, will not have the maximum impact on saving lives. Only 9% of Americans currently believe that COVID is still a crisis. And that's according to a recent Axios Ipsos poll. Trying to convince 91% of Americans otherwise, it just seems like a recipe for failure. Given all of this, Robbie, what can public health experts and elected officials do if they want to save the most lives and help people make better decisions for their health? Jeremy, as you know from our Coronavirus The Truth podcast, people do have lots of questions about the virus and their personal health. Therefore, a useful service in the federal government might be something like this. Create a simple and easily accessible app to help people better understand their risks and make their own choices for their health. A government-powered COVID risk calculator could combine what scientists understand about the virus and what people understand about themselves. Users would fill out a brief and anonymous survey with questions about their age, active diseases, medications, subjective risk tolerance, and chances of exposure. And the database program would generate a risk score that would rate their chances for serious illness after infection and then offer appropriate safety recommendations based upon the individual's risk boundaries. And what about people who are at the greatest risk? Doctors and researchers know that immunocompromised Americans, these are people with cancer, lung disease, multiple chronic diseases, they remain at heightened risk. In recent remarks, the Biden administration has promised to make effective COVID treatments available to as many Americans and in as many pharmacies as possible. Drugs like Paxlovid have been shown to effectively prevent hospitalizations and death when taken soon after becoming infected. But instead of trying to make the drug available to all 330 million Americans, our nation would save the most lives if health officials focused on making this life-saving drug as easily accessible as possible to the most vulnerable Americans. You know, imagine a website that acts like Amazon's one-click buy now option, but only for the medically vulnerable. A click or phone call would generate a same-day appointment for testing. It would guarantee drug availability at no cost to the individual, and it might even arrange transportation to the pharmacy or at home delivery if the pharmacy option was not a good one. Any last comments or thoughts, Robbie? Jeremy, now that the tribe has spoken and America has declared the pandemic over, health policy experts have a choice. They can continue to tell people what they should do for maximal protection, or they can listen and observe people's behavior and offer advice in that context as to what will save the most lives. To me, it's similar to many other public health threats. You know, there's no question what smokers and people who are obese need to do to improve their health. Information isn't the limiting factor, but if they're unlikely to change their behavior and follow those recommendations, the question is what can elected officials and health policy experts do to help people become a little bit healthier? That may be walking a short distance on day one and adding a few steps each day. Maybe cutting back on the number of cigarettes smoked or the nicotine content of each. If the job of these agencies and individuals is to be right, they're doing a great job when it comes to COVID. 
But if it's to save the most lives and improve the health of people, the approach they're using today is failing and it's falling short of what is possible. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Fixing Healthcare is now a weekly podcast posted each Sunday night, rotating our Today Show Diving Deep, followed by Coronavirus the Truth, and then Breaking the Rules of Healthcare with a different guest each show, and finally Unfiltered with Zubin Demania, aka ZDog MD, joining Robbie and me. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whichever platform you prefer. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to today's Fisting Healthcare's newest series, Diving Deep, with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.